It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got a look at the latest security news, including boring SSL, plus answers uh, to 10 of your questions. Security Now next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 461, recorded Tuesday, June 24th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 190. Security Now is brought to you by Citrix ShareFile. Enhance your workflow, send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try Citrix ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. And by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device for 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to ITPro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson. He's... Yo, Leo. <laughs> Yo, Stephen. You know, that, that, is, that is filtered into Wikipedia now. Know, I'm not sure. It. <laughs> it's not his real middle name, but uh, it uh, could but be. But I'm quite happy. I'm quite happy with it having danced with Captain Kirk. Yes. Cardboard cutout yes. for New Year's Eve. I think I probably earned you're, that. You're known for that now. Yeah. So we're we've got episode four sixty one, which is a Q and A. Since we we uh, spun everybody's propellers up last week with our episode on authenticated encryption, um, and sort of an interesting week, we've got uh, the EFF promoting the return of open wireless, uh, a acronym YAFUSL, which stands for yet another fork of open SSL. <laughs> Apple cautiously inching forward with Touch ID. Guess who's going to start selling domain names? I'm sure you know already. I do know. And uh, I some positive some noises from yep. the legislative front on the NSA and patents. Uh, miscellaneous hijinks updates and 10 questions uh, from our terrific listeners. So uh, lots of fun this week. I think. As always, jam-packed with goodness before we get to... Uh those stories and more. Let us uh, say hello to our friends at Citrix who have done a great service to everybody in business who is at all security conscious. Unfortunately, there is still some education to do about sending email attachments. Uh, You've heard me say for years, don't send email attachments. It's risky. Uh, That's how viruses get spread. Malware gets spread. We tell people not to uh, not to uh, even uh, open attachments. So if you're in business and you're sending attachments, you're kind of going upstream here and there's other reasons you may not want to send email attachments they're insecure and uh, nowadays files are so big they can overflow the mailboxes get bounced back and yet i understand when you're in business you often need to share contracts presentations uh bills email attachments are kind of a, a big part of business these days can i suggest an alternative and if you're not the person at your company who decides to tell them about it citrix share file the easiest, fastest, simplest way to share files. 
instead of sending an attachment via email, you're sending a secure link. And it's easy for the people recipients at your end, at the other end, because uh, they don't have to um, know anything. They don't have to have a share file account. They don't have to log in. It's great for you because not only is it secure, uh, you control it. Um, you can add uh, all sorts of controls about access, how long you can, uh, you know, let that file be on the Internet, how, how many times they can download it. You can demand that they enter an email and a password if you wish. It's set up so it works with almost every industry, including HIPAA compliant in healthcare, uh, compliant with SEC regulations in finance. So that's important, too. Confidentiality is everything. I always laugh when I get emails with attachments from my lawyers and they have these disclaimers that say you know if you got this in error don't open it it's not yours to see you shouldn't read it go put it away immediately like that's gonna work that just makes people want to read it start using sharefile somebody asked me can i uh use sharefile to get files from clients yes you can also do that you can request a file upload files up to 10 gigabytes if you use Outlook, they've got a plug-in for Outlook. They've got widgets. They've got desktop sync tools. It works with what you're doing. For instance, I have a ShareFile folder on my desktop. When I record audio for the radio stations, I save it to that folder. It's automatically synchronized right up to my ShareFile cloud. I can share it there with my uh, smartphone apps uh, or directly. Uh, in fact, I'll, if you want, I could show you. Well, I'll save you time. You've probably seen me do it. I can show you how it works. It's really great. Supports right signature as well, so you can use e-signatures. This is fantastic. I want you to try it free today. Now, here's the way you do it uh, when you're listening to Security Now. We have a special link at the top of the share file page where it says Podcast Listeners. It's kind of hidden, but if you wouldn't mind, click that one, Podcast Listeners. It's got a microphone next to it. And then use the offer code Security Now. That way, Steve gets credit, okay? That's what we want. You'll get 30 days free. Steve will get credit, and everybody will be happy, including your clients and your colleagues. Citrix ShareFile. Try it today. ShareFile.com. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW after clicking the link that says podcast listeners. Citrix ShareFile. I, I love it. I use it all the time, and I've tried all of the choices. All right, Steve, time for the security news. So this is kind of weird. Um the register, well, it, it got some good coverage because this was being promoted by our friends at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. And, of course, the register.co.uk covered it in their typically snarky fashion. Uh, the headline was, EFF wants you to open your Wi-Fi to improve, all caps in their headline, privacy. And then their their first little two sentences said, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, wants internet users to go back to the turn of the century. And, and I thought, well, wait a minute. Okay, yeah, we have had a century turn not that long ago, so that's appropriate. Well, there was Wi-Fi at the turn of the most recent century. And open their, their wireless networks for anyone to connect in order to enhance privacy. The EFF wants us all to use the open wireless initiatives free router firmware which allows users to create open guest accounts that anyone in range can use so i saw these headlines and i thought okay wait a minute what what <laughs> so first of all there is a site openwireless.org and it wasn't clear from looking at the eff's site 
whether they were one of many sponsors, because there are many sponsors shown at the bottom of the homepage at openwireless.org. And the EFF is prominent, but there's a bunch. And so I checked out the what is listing or the who is rather entry in the Internet who is database. And sure enough, in 2011, so three years ago, openwireless.org was registered by the EFF. Uh, There's an EFF domain name for its email and the street address is that of the EFF in San Francisco. So... This is really one of their domains. And so here's their deal. Um, and, and, and I'll explain it and then we need to talk about it because it's sort of, you know, definitely has got pros and cons. So on the, the, the way the EFF describes this, their, their philosophy is they, they, they said, imagine being able to walk around any street in any city and never worrying about checking an email, downloading a map, making a video call, or streaming a song. EFF believes that open wireless networks greatly contribute to the public good. Computer users worried about privacy or security risks have largely taken the default route of closing down their networks. Though the willingness to operate in a secure environment is understandable, the issue is that modern encryption systems make open sharing with friends, family, and passers-by very difficult. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's the point. Anyway, continuing, they said... Isn't this what Comcast uh, did and we got all mad at them for? Well, kind of. And and we'll talk about that because... but, but, But Comcast lets you do this, but you still have to be a Comcast customer. So you have to use your Comcast login to log into somebody else's router sort of without their knowledge but 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 so yeah but but we'll we'll, we'll come back to that so they, they they said in order to promote beneficial uses of the internet in all walks of life EFF and a coalition of organizations are launching the open wireless movement we're working on new technologies and best practices that will allow individuals, businesses, and community organizations to open up their wireless networks while not sacrificing privacy, security, and quality. Opening one's wireless is a neighborly act that should be supported by router manufacturers, internet service providers, and legal systems. There have been cases where individuals running open networks were wrongfully raided (laughs) for one of their guests' wrongful actions. But these cases are highly exceptional. We believe that individuals hosting networks should gain the same protections as service providers, especially since open wireless services are becoming ubiquitous. More and more cafes, airports, Libraries, schools, and individuals happily share their networks with customers and passers-by. We encourage Internet service providers to not have blanket prohibitions of open wireless in their terms of service. And we think business models could be built off of letting customers run open nodes. Open wireless also helps conserve radio spectrum. It turns out that wireless networks, 802.11, which is Wi-Fi, operate much more effectively 
and efficiently than cell phone towers because wireless systems are connected to a much more distributed system of routers, many more devices can operate on the same frequency. If you wish to find out more about Open Wireless, go to openwireless.org. If you are a technologist or company that would like to get involved with the movement, email openwireless at eff.org. So that's their position. Now, what is interesting is there's some upcoming event, and I didn't write it down, and now I can't remember what it was, but it's like a month away where the EFF is going to be unveiling replacement firmware for a router, an open source replacement firmware, which will have been security audited for a router they're not yet disclosing. So they haven't said what router, but I mean, it's going to be probably Linksys, I would imagine, uh, since that tends to be the the one that most of these plat- these alternative firmware platforms run on most easily. And, and so this initiative is intending to promote the replacement of firmware. And, and I mean, certainly it's the case that we've seen a lot of exploits recently, um, you know, backdoors discovered in commercial router firmware provided by companies other than the router manufacturer. You know, they, they purchased a license for that to install on their routers. And then it turns out there was, you know, a little more than we were bargaining for. Um, and thus, you know, things like uh, DDWRT and, and Tomato are popular open source replacement firmwares for those routers. So now the EFF is saying, it's like, let, look, let's actively promote this. We want to, to make this available. Now, what, this, what, what their firmware does is a couple extra things. It creates, now it's not clear to me whether you can share a single router with a closed network that is whether it it, it has a, a guest you know a, a, a guest facility the way Comcast i think does pretty that. much yeah and all, all of, routers yeah. many routers modern routers have that yeah yeah i, I think all modern it. routers do do now yeah um they, see and the reason i'm a little i'm not sure is that somewhere i read them saying get a cheap get any cheap router oh. and install this oh. so as opposed to installing this on the one you already have. So, I, but I don't know either way. Right. But, but there is a technology which I was surprised when I dug in that it was as widely available as it is, and that's EAP-TLS. Uh, EAP is Extensible Authentication Protocol, which it turns out is sort of hiding in all of our routers. It's really ubiquitous. But it's not sort of the default de facto uh, standard. In order to get WPA or WPA2 certification, you have to have it in the router. So it's in all of our routers. And what that allows is it allows a client certificate to be installed in your phone or your iPad or your 
your laptop, whatever you're going to be connecting to, or your desktop if, if you have a wireless uh, connection to your desktop at home. And so what this does is um, EFF will be making this, this uh, openwireless.org certificate, a client certificate, freely available. So everybody installs this. And the matching certificate will be will be will be already part of this firmware, that this this open wireless org firmware that they will be promoting that people install in their routers. And what this means is that you still get encryption even though your access point is open. So strangers can connect. There's no portal. They're anti-portal, um, and they, and they talk about how, you know, fr- frankly, that's sort of hostile in their in their image of this future. Lots of people are running this replacement firmware. Um, there's also bandwidth protections, so that you're able to you're able to say anybody using the the openwireless.org. Oh, and that's the SSID, by the way. So, for example, when you're roaming, you would, you know, hopefully you'd like bring up your list of available Wi-Fi and there'd be a whole bunch of openwireless.org SSIDs. And you'd choose the one with the the strongest signal strength, for example, and connect to it. No portal, no login terms of service or anything. They don't like that because they're liking the idea, for example, of people with with ubiquitous sort of the you know the Internet of Things devices, watches and and phones and so forth that are just hopping from one one of these to the next, um, using the client certificate to be to be encrypted. So it's we're not talking the the traditional unencrypted, easily sniffable open hotspot. Um, but that's their, you know, that's their uh, intent is to push this. Oh, and the way they talk about enhancing privacy is they're, you know, and of course we know who the EFF is. I'm glad they're there. They're, you know, very pro-privacy, anti, you know, eavesdropping and and, you know, civil rights and and so forth. Um, Of course, we talk about them as a consequence all the time. Their argument is the more that we, their their argument is we have to further back away from this idea that an IP represents a person. Um, Their argument is, you know, IPs are not personally identifiable and we need to further break that association if you do have an encrypted access point, if your Wi-Fi is encrypted, then you have a hard time making the argument that any misbehavior which is logged against that IP was not you because it can't have been anybody else. So, so they're saying let's, let's use this approach of sharing our IP address to to further weaken the association, and that's where this notion of Comcast comes in. Because you know the the, the Comcast concept of I think I, I read fifty thousand routers in Texas, for example, are have been replaced by Comcast, and 
Comcast customers are free to use anybody's Comcast bandwidth uh, as long as they're able to log into Comcast. Well, inherently, that means that Comcast subscribers are no longer able to be held responsible for something happening to their IP. And and in fact, the the EFF has a PDF. I've got the link. Uh, you, you can track it down. Right now it's on their front page. Uh, I did. It's in the show notes this week, and I tweeted it earlier today. So there's a number of ways people can find it. Anyway, it's their sort of their position on the issue of Wi-Fi and copyright and how in the same way that ISPs themselves are, can never be held liable for the actions of their users, similarly – access point operators who are freely making bandwidth available can, can similarly, just like an ISP, they are essentially a service provider. They're, they're harmless against the actions that people may take using the bandwidth, which is streaming through them, but was not actually their action. So anyway, I don't know what will come of it, but uh, was uh, certainly an interesting you know, I mean, it, it got picked up in the news, and so I'm sure next, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll be we'll be mentioning that. Uh, whoop, you know, now we know what the firmware is for, and people can download it. And I mean, I know that there are people who just like the idea of running, you know, of like offering bandwidth, and uh, this arguably is a is a is a you know somewhat more burdensome, but because of the need. To you, I, I don't know whether you it'll be open and available encrypted. That is, what, whether you'll be act, be able to access it without the certificate. I would imagine you can. the The bandwidth is both available without a client side certificate, but if you want encryption, then you can use the client side certificate. It's, however, this also means that even though you're encrypted, you don't have super security. First of all. You know, if you're using anybody else's hotspot, then you don't have super security. Because um, even if they weren't um, doing a man-in-the-middle attack, which is possible even with the certificate, because we're going to all know what the what the what the router certificate is, because it's open source. It'll be sitting, you know, in an open source repository in order to be built into the firmware. So that's so that means that somebody else could set up a fake hotspot with the openwireless.org um, uh, keying and still be able to intercept your bandwidth. So, you know, anyone using anyone else's bandwidth needs to understand that, you know, they need to be using their to to be protecting their traffic themselves with HTTPS tunneling within the connection. Uh, but at least it's not it's not wide open. So anyway, just sort of an interesting initiative. It'll be fun to see uh, where this goes. I, you know, it's funny. I remember bringing up a list of and at the turn of the century, bringing up a list of wireless, you know, hotspots within range of of where I am sitting right now, and uh, they were all unencrypted back in the day. Now there isn't a single unencrypted 
wireless hotspot around, you know, within my residential community. They're there, you know, they've all got got, you know, the little padlock showing. Um, and it's, you know, it is the case that you go to restaurants and sometimes they're, you know, m- making Wi-Fi available or sometimes, you know, if you know, the, the restaurant will have wireless, but you need to ask them for what the password is. So what do you think? Well, don't we, didn't we, part of the concern we had with Comcast was the security issue. Yep. Uh, that there would be some leakage or some unknown exploit that would uh, would cause your you know local area network to be visible to somebody who sh- as a guest. So that would be yeah. that's the same, right? Yep. You, but it, <clears throat> absolutely, you need to make sure that that in, well, no, for example, in in the way that the the guest uh, the guest systems are set up now in contemporary routers, you you you're able to say whether or not you want the guest account to have visibility into right. Right. your your LAN and or to be able to bridge over to your other wireless. Well, no, that's another side. thing I didn't think of is the security of the person using the access point. You might be exposing your laptop to the owner, uh, and if he were nefarious, uh, that would be bad. So I think there's issues there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, otherwise, I think it's a great idea. Fon is phone or Fon F O N has been doing this for some time. In fact, yes. when they were first started yeah. as a company, the Spanish yeah. telecommunications. Yeah. yeah, and when the Fon routers first came out, the whole premise was to create a mesh of shared internet right. access. Uh, and they actually, you know, I was thinking Meraki. Fon does it, but then Meraki, yeah. the Meraki routers, that was the idea. Um, Meraki ended up getting sold to Cisco, and and is you know not doing that anymore they went enterprise but i think that this is not a new idea i like the idea i just don't know yeah. how it's different i guess the biggest difference from comcast is you don't have to be a comcast customer it's just you're sharing it with the world i like the idea too that the eff is behind it they're clearly good guys i mean if there's anyone i'm going to trust it's them they're saying this will be fully security audited so again where we had people saying, well, you know, I don't really understand DDWRT or tomato or I'm not comfortable with it. Well, you know, here's something you could really, I think, be comfortable with. We'll have, we'll have to take a look at it and see, you know, what the features are, how it operates and, you know, re- really give it a good vetting. But, you know, I'm with you. I, I do. I really do like the idea of 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 creating ubiquitous Wi-Fi. Right. And, you know, a mesh and and but in a way that is that, that does not compromise the security of the owners. Now, one issue and that, that you heard me mention in the in the um, in the EFF dialogue is that t- the terms, the current terms of service of many, in fact, most big ones there that they have a list on openwireless.org showing ISPs that don't do this and they're not, they're not major ISPs. The typical default terms of service says you cannot knowingly, willingly share the bandwidth you're buying from us with other people. That is, it's for your use, your household's use. You know, you can't make it broadly available. So, so that's where I mean, the EFF understands that, and we're going to need some concession from. ISPs backing down from that and saying, okay, fine, you know, as long as as long as you do it in a responsible way, we'll allow you to. 
So, so the the point being that doing it deliberately right now would te- mm, be a would technical viol- violation in terms of service. That's what Advantage Comcast has. They are the ISP. So they set right. the terms of service. Yeah. All right. right. Good. Yeah. It's an so, ad- admirable uh, idea. Yeah, and let's hope it happens. I mean, it would be you know I don't know how big a movement it is at the moment. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> this buyers- is, you know the the whole point of for Comcast is. It, it's it affect their entry into uh, wireless t- uh, um, data, right? Yes. If they can blanket, and they have in many uh, towns, blanket that town with Comcast access points, now they can do a phone service. There's all sorts of stuff they can do. And so yep. there's a commercial incentive that the EFF lacks. Their only incentive is uh, altruism. Yeah, and truly. I, and I think usually uh, greed at Trump's altruism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Yeah. So uh, I did note that uh, there was some uh, some news leak from China about the scale of Apple's orders for the Touch ID sensor, which has led those who track these things to predict that when we get the next generation of Apple devices later here in coming up in 2014, all of them are going to have Touch ID. The new iPhone 6s, the new iPad, the iPad Air, and the iPad Mini. Um, and uh, I had a uh, someone who's working on a Squirrel client took a look at the API that Apple just opened up because this was one of the things that we learned about during the the um, the iOS eight was that the t- Touch ID a- API was going to be opened up, and so what they did was very simple. It's just a binary go no go indication. Applications are able to request a real time prompt from iOS to confirm the user's touch ID identity. That is that whoever's holding the phone has registered that fingerprint among those that are known by the phone, that are authorized to use the phone. So unfortunately, I don't think you get like who among the users are there. There's no, you know, as it was described to me, it was just binary. It was yes or no, touch ID just succeeded. Um, so, you know, they're keeping it very simple and moving it forward slowly. Um, but, uh, but for example, in the case of, of at least this squirrel client, you'll be able to, to use that in order to re-authenticate that you're still the owner who wants to use squirrel to log into a website. So uh, I'm glad for that level of functionality and, and uh, it's nice to see Apple creeping forward. I mean, you know, they've proven it now with the 5S and they're going to, uh, you know, re- release it more broadly. Well, Adam Langley has forked OpenSSL. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he posted so, a so short... So has Google, right? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Google. Adam, Adam Langley, Langley is at Google. Google. But is he doing yes. it as Adam Langley? He's doing it as Google. Oh, yeah, he's doing yeah, it as yeah. Google. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so on, uh, it's his, more his, relevant his, to people if you say Google has forked SSL than Adam <laughs> Langley has. So, well, let's be clear. Who's, yes, what's going yes, on here? Yes, yes. Ad, Google's Adam <laughs> Langley. There you go. I like that. 
<laughs> Google's Adam Langley has forked OpenSSL. Of course, famously, we SSL was forked, uh, and we we talked about that by this Libre SSL group that have decided, you know, they're going to, you know, strip it out and, and clean it up and reduce its size. And there's been all kinds of noise spinning off of that. Um, if you uh, if you look uh, at the link, Leo, at the bottom of that page, it's he he's calling it. He Google. Uh, yeah, there the, 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 there's this a link. Part of, the I'm source not, of the confusion is this is a personal blog called Imperial Violet. And I, I wish Google would. I don't know. Do this more yeah. officially. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, so here's what Adam said. He said earlier this year, before Apple had too many go-to fails and GNU TLS had too few, before everyone learnt, he wrote that TLS heartbeat messages were a thing, and that some bugs are really old. I started a tidy up. I, says Adam Langley, writing for Google, I mean, this is, you know, Adam Langley is Google. He's their security guy. I started a tidy up of the open SSL code that we use at Google. We've used a number of patches on top of open SSL for many years. Some of them have been accepted into the main open SSL repository, but many of them don't mesh with OpenSSL's guarantee of API and ABI stability. The API is the application programming interface where you are you have ways of creating code that can talk to OpenSSL. ABI is the application binary interface where you'd have binary interoperability, not needing to compile these things together. So he says either API or ABI stability, and many of them are a little too experimental. But as Android, Chrome, and other products have started to need some subset of these patches, things have grown very complex. And I can hardly, I can, can't even imagine how complex. The effort involved in keeping all these patches, and there are more than 70 at the moment, Seven zero straight across multiple code bases is getting to be too much. So we're switching models to one where we import changes from OpenSSL rather than rebasing on top of them. And I'll explain that in a second. The result of that will start to appear in the Chromium repository soon. And over time, we hope to use it in Android and internally within Google, too. There are no guarantees of API or ABI stability with this code. We're not aiming to replace OpenSSL as an open source project. We will still be sending them bug fixes when we find them, and we'll be importing changes from upstream. Also, we will still be funding the core infrastructure initiative and the OpenBSD Foundation, but we'll also be able to import changes from LibreSSL, and they are welcome to make changes, to take changes from us. And then he calls this boring SSL. I love that. Um, <laughs> and he said, the name is aspirational and not yet a promise. Meaning, you know, he hopes it's boring. 
So essentially what this says is that that they've been try- they've sort of been holding on trying to use open SSL I mean tr- trying to continue using it to get the to gain the benefit of the open SSL ongoing work yet they've got 70 significant changes which which their stuff needs which is really has been diverging the target of open SSL and it's just gotten to be too much so they're now they've like essentially made take they've taken a snapshot of the current open open SSL code base and they have forked it they've got their own set of files and this link it's a boring ssl.googlesource.com and what i have is slash boring ssl this is this is this is the change log and oh my goodness um i mean th- it it does show this is where adam is spending his time it starts 4 days ago on friday when he made this posting and it's it's hundreds of changes to the code. I mean, he's just going through it, fixing things and changing things. So I think they're being gentle in sort of saying, you know, they're going to feed things back. I mean, I'm sure they will continue to be, to be cross-pollination. But basically what this means is Google has just decided to 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 fork the project to to go their own way. Um, certainly, they'll be interested to see what changes OpenSSL makes and then to import those changes into their code. What they have been doing is this rebasing that he talks of is maintaining 70 patches which they're continually reapplying whenever the OpenSSL code changes. Then they need to like repatch it in order to create their own version of it. And they've just decided, no, okay, we're going to stop that. So that means that finally those 70 patches, I'm sure they've already been applied when the fork was made. Now they've got their own stable code base, which will now diverge. I mean, we know about Speedy. We've talked about that. I've got on my list of things to talk about quick, Q-U-I-C, which is another one of these experiments which is really interesting looking it is udp secure http protocol instead of it instead of http http being on top of 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 tcp this is on udp with the significant benefits in speed that that means so you know there and and that's what Adam talks about when he talks about how you know Google wants to be doing experimental things I mean they they I'm surprised they've lasted this long frankly so there we, we the world now has something called boring SSL open public and going to sort of be a, a a development platform for for Google's own moving forward security initiatives and frankly I wouldn't be surprised if this is the way you know, the, the way Google ends up solving the problem that they've got with certificate revocation, because, you know, what they took from OpenSSL 
has all of that in there. That that's all that code is there. So this is probably their way of 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 getting control of it and then doing with it from now on what they want. Uh, and we so we now have open SSL, Libre SSL, and boring SSL. Good. Which actually I don't think is going to be boring at all. Boring from a standpoint of hopefully we won't be melting down with security problems. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's going to have, it's going to be the, the, the platform for all of these, you know, initiatives that Google will, will be experimenting with, which I think is neat. I think it's a little odd that Adam Langley has such a cult of personality within Google. Um, I mean, surely he's not the only guy writing security code at Google. It's no, it's it's. I, it just bugs me a little bit. I I do understand, Leo. Yeah, I I, kind I, of I a do. cult of personality. It's like I do understand. Yeah. Uh, um, so, speaking of Google, uh, domains.google.com. Uh, Google is going to become a domain registrar. They're in beta now. It's invitation only. You can request an invitation, and I don't know how many people have or or care, but uh, you can get one. Uh, so, you know, in, in their slash about page, they said a domain name, your address on the Internet, says a lot about who you are and what you do. New domain endings like .guru and dot photography can help you find a meaningful address that stands out on the web. Every domain includes easy forwarding, branded email, you know, like you at your company.com, simple management tools and other helpful features. So um, they've got a few interesting things. Um, so no additional cost for private registration. That's the one that really perk to my interest. Hubbard, I mean, Hubbard I'm, does that. Our advertiser does that. Oh, good. Um, I believe I me. I rigor. The only people who don't do it. <laughs> Go, Daddy. Yeah, is, is my register is my registrar. Who's your yeah, registrar? I'm still, at I'm still at Network Solutions. Oh, that's old I'm, school, man. That's I'm me still too. Old, that's where uh, all my original domains were there because that was the domain registrar, right? Yep, they were. They were the guys. And I and and they're just. It, it takes me maybe. 10 times longer, I'm not exaggerating, 10 times longer to, to register a new domain name because I have to say no to so yeah. many things Steve, that they're trying. Uh, Hover.com. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, I moved but, everything uh, over there. I can't, I can't risk it being lost. I mean, I don't know why it would be, but I'm just, you know, I'm a nervous Nelly about, you know, GRC.com ever, like, being stolen from me. There's a, there's a uh, pretty... Uh, solid transfer process that is overseed, overseen by ICANN. I think it's safe. Yeah. There's a whole thing. You I'm, know, you have a code. There's a whole thing you have to do to transfer a domain name. Well, but it, like if, if someone broke into my into my Network Solutions account or Network Solutions had a breach, then they could authorize the transfer of my domain. And right. I, you know, and that would be bad. <laughs> I don't want that. Mm -hmm. Well, so yeah, so oh, you do. Yeah. I don't understand. That's so that's how yeah, it is you know, now, I mean, right? Yes, and so I'm that's hoping that Network Solutions has really good old school <laughs> strong security. Uh, I see, I see. And and believe me, I've got a password from hell, so no one's no one's going to guess that. Right. So 
I mean, I'm, I've protected myself every way I can with all kinds of, you know, verifications and, un, you know, email addresses I never use for anything else and, and so forth. So, you but know, there's a couple I of questions want... about the Google registry, though. Okay. Well, for one thing, they've been doing this for years internally. So they have been a registrar, official registrar with ICANN for, I think, 10 years. Oh, interesting. This I didn't is know the, that. They're just now opening this to the public. But they have one thing that puzzles me. They limit you to a certain number of DNS requests per year. Now, I don't know if networks... Whoa. It's no a large kidding. number. I think it's... A, I can't remember what it is. A million or something like that. But that is... I've never seen any registrar say that. Maybe that's the case. Um, I don't know. Uh, that seems odd. Now, it's a large number. And remember, DNS requests... Wouldn't they'll be cached? So yeah. So the only trouble, the only reason I could ever see that being a problem would be if you were deliberately using extremely short TTLs, yeah, times to live, um, on your DNS entries. And the only reason you would do that would be if you were needing for some reason to change your, um. IP addresses frequently or be making changes that you didn't want to have cached for a long time. Uh, back in the, the old days when we were being attacked, when I, when I was with Vario, I had a relatively short uh, TTL of a couple hours, so that, which would force all the internet server, all the other DNS servers to come back every couple hours and see whether GRC's IP address had changed. Uh, you know, things have been much quieter lately, and so our, you know, we've gone back to a more normal uh, TTL. Um, so, I mean, so I, I guess I can, I, I, I can't, I can't, I don't really see that being a problem. But that is an interesting, you know, caveat. I guess yeah. maybe they're being more, they're just being honest instead of saying, oh, unlimited bandwidth. They're saying, well. We have such a we have a very high limit on the number of requests you make, but I have I do remember seeing other commercial providers of DNS doing that. So that so that so that's also saying they're not just a registrar; they're also serving the DNS. You know, they're being the DNS server of the domains they register. For example, I, I use I use Network Solutions as my registrar, but I run my own DNS servers. So. I'm not using network solutions as my DNS only as only to get the, you know, to 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 register the the, the domains. You get a hundred so, email so they, aliases. You get a customized hundred sub and hundred subdomains. Yeah, that's like uh, you know uh, images.grc.com. Those are the subdomains. Yeah, um, and they integrate with Squarespace, which we like. They're going to integrate with yep. some of our partners. They, uh, but they that, say that uh, limitation the, is the only thing that puzzled me. And I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I don't see it as any problem for anyone. Yeah. Um, and and also, it's, I'm curious too. They, they, they said availability of new domain endings. You know, the problem with things like .dot guru and .dot photography is that you know they need to be supported by the DNS servers. You know, like by 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 the root DNS servers. In, or by D, by servers that your server knows to query, and you know this is why like .com and .edu and .org and .net they all are. But you know these these you know sort of off-brand top-level domains just don't have wide coverage yet. 
So it, you know, it's nice that you can buy them, but it's, you know, you need to be able to have them supported. Now, I guess the point is that Google would be doing that. Right. So they're that, using that Google's DNS good. servers, so that's nice. Right. Yeah, I and guess you get, the other you get thing their is, infrastructure. Do you, do you want how much uh, <laughs> how, how much of your eggs do you want to put in the Google World basket? Exactly. Right? How much yeah, do, yeah, does do we need Google to be doing anything more for us? Yeah. You know, spreadsheets and email and and you know my 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 handheld device and my whole my cloud and my you know it's like yeah. just Google goes everything. down, the world goes down. Yeah. So um okay, two legislative bits. Uh the NSA uh was dealt a blow in the House of Representatives um last week, last Thursday. Uh they voted overwhelmingly uh, in a bipartisan vote that on both sides of the aisle, 293 in favor, 123 against. So, you know, way more than two thirds um, to to prevent the defense appropriations bill from funding NSA backdoors and backdoor searches. Essentially, they, they passed an amendment to the Defense Appropriations Bill, which cuts funding for NSA backdoors and backdoor searches. As it is now, the NSA collects emails, um, browsing, and chat history, as we know, under Section 702 of FISA, which we talked about back when the whole Edward Snowden revelations began to happen. Um, and then they are able to search through all of that aggregated communications of Americans without warrant. So this practice has become known as backdoor searches. The amendment which passed would block the NSA from using any of its funding from this defense appropriations bill to conduct those warrantless searches of the data that they collect. Secondly, the amendment prohibits the NSA from using its budget to mandate or request that private companies and organizations add backdoors to the encryption standards that are meant to protect users' privacy on the web. Now, you know, it is true that this controls the purse strings and purse strings are important, but this is certainly different from legislation saying they are not able to do that. This says they can't use this money to fund that. So I'm not close enough to this to understand, you know, what real impact this has. Uh, it still, has, of course, has to go get passed by the Senate, and then the, the president has to sign it into law. But, uh, you know, given a vote this strong, it, I, I'll be very surprised if this doesn't happen. So, you know, that was good. And we got some nice... Uh, motion, although less useful than many watchers of this were hoping, on the patent front. There was an argument, uh, it's about a year old, by an Australia-based bank called Alice Corporation that sued a bank called CLS over um, CLS's use of a patent which Alice Corp had on on how to use a computer for escrowing. That is essentially how to use software to run 
a, a, a third-party escrow. And CLS said, this patent is bogus. And Alice Corp said, no, it's not. We've got a patent and we're enforcing it. So what we got last Thursday was a ruling from the Supreme Court agreeing that just that simply running a concept through a computer doesn't itself merit a patent. That is, Alice Corp, it didn't invent anything. They just said, okay, here's how you do escrowing with a computer. And so, you know, the, you know, the, People who are worried about the like the the freedom with which patents are being granted for software, um, we're hoping for much a, a much stronger statement from the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, we got something you know not very useful for anything else. Um, Clarence Thomas wrote the decision. It was a unanimous decision, so not even controversial on on the courts side um and 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 he wrote they in 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 his in his um in in his rendering of a judgment he explicitly said that this didn't need to deal with the at with the idea the question of abstract ideas which he in his writing he called the abstract idea problem because the facts of the case were so obviously against the company with the bad patents so essentially this you know it made a statement about software patents that are simply embodiments of real world things implemented in the software and so that's good as far as it goes to the degree that any that there are any other of those out there they're you know they will now no longer stand this you know anybody who's fighting what they feel is a patent in software that just simply states, oh, we did this with a computer, those patents will be easily overturned uh, based on this, the rendering of this decision from the Supreme Court. But uh, we, you know, everyone who's watching patent law was hoping for more than this. Um, and then, okay, so <laughs> I, lo- I really got a kick out of this. I have a, a, a follower, Rothgar, uh, who tweeted me he said, Steve, or he said at SGGRC, a cool story about Google's use of the 95-5 rule. Um, and he tweeted me a link, which was to a, page 187 of a Stephen Levy's book, In the Plex, How Google Thinks, Works, and Shapes Our Lives. Now, remember that uh, I explained in our two weeks ago, uh, in answer to a Q and A, how exactly how ninety five five operates? Where over the course of a month, five five minute intervals are sampled. So all of the bytes that you that you use, like a like a a a, a server farm user uses, are totaled in five minute intervals and all of those 5 minute intervals are then are then collected and sorted so you'll end up with naturally a you know maximum to minimum sorting of 5 minute intervals then of however many there are 5 minute intervals in that billing period 
the top 5% are discarded completely. And that next interval is, is regarded as the amount of bandwidth you were using all month for all five minutes of the month and you're billed on that. Well, if you think about it, and I mean, all of we server users have thought about it, you know, you're really kind of getting away with peaks in usage that don't show at all. So what, what Stephen Levy wrote was, back in 2000, so, you know, this is Time Machine. This is 14 years ago when Google was way smaller. Google wanted to get speedier by setting up data centers in locations closer to its users. Its first priority was getting servers on the East Coast of the United States, meaning that this was in a time when Google was still just sitting there in Silicon Valley. By the spring of that year, Google was occupying space in a colo in northern Virginia. By the, um, uh, the tricky part of setting up a new facility was loading all those thousands of servers with the indexes. That involved moving terabytes of data, which was potentially going to force Google to pay a huge amount of money to the bandwidth provider that owned the fiber. Networking was very expensive, uh, quoting someone named Holtz, or Holtzel, I guess. And our data push would take 20 hours at a gigabyte per second. That would cost us something like a quarter million dollars a month. To save money, Google devised a trick that exploited a loophole in the billing system known as the 95th percentile rule writes Steve Levy, over the period of a month, the provider would measure how much information was moving, automatically taking a measurement every five minutes. In order to to discard unusual spikes in activity, is the way Levy explains it, although, of course, we covered it differently two weeks ago, when the billing rate was calculated, the provider would lop off the measurements in the top five percentiles and bill the customer at the rate of the 95th percentile. Google's exploitation of the rule was like the correct answer to a trick question in one of its hiring interviews. It decided to squeeze the movement of all of its information into those discounted spikes. Quote, we figured out that if we used zero bandwidth all month, except for 30 hours once a month, we would be under that 5%, says someone named Reese, for two nights a month from 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. Pacific time, Google moved all the data in its indexes from east to west. We would, quote, we would push as fast as we could, and that would cause massive traffic to go across. But it was during the lull hours for them. And, of course, the bill came out to zero, says Reese, because they then lopped off that top 5% and our remaining bandwidth was, in fact, zero because we didn't use any otherwise. He says, I literally turned off the router ports for 28 or 29 days per month. So there's a hack for you. 
<laughs> Google moved all of their data across the United States without using in, any bandwidth <laughs> in two 15-hour periods, essentially, wow. to f- squeeze it into the 95th percentile so and and beca- beca- become completely transparent in terms of their usage. Now that's an optimization. Wow. That's a hack. <laughs> oh wow! So uh, a uh, a piece of errata. Uh, from Adam Ross, I was talking about ghash.io, and he sent me a tweet. Uh, so thank you, Adam, saying a small point which makes a big difference. Ghash.io is a commercial entity that rents hash time on their equipment, not a pool. I was referring to it last week as a as a a mining pool, uh, which I thought it was from actually from things that I read in their own on their own website the way they were talking about how you know measuring their size but you know apparently they're just hardware and so miners when they said they had 55% of miners well, I guess that's people who are renting time on their hardware so it does really give them more central control to um to the degree that they're like over 51% of total hashing power of of um bitcoin uh, that is to my mind a little more frightening that you know this is you know one facility with all these incredible asics cranking away um and i got a note from someone in argentina or as they call it argentina <laughs> Uh, Frederico Bet said, just writing to let you know that you have some listeners from Argentina. Keep up the good work. Great. Um, and I, I, I tweeted a bit of news from TechCrunch that surprised my listeners. I had said to you, I guess, off the air, Leo, that uh, I'm a big fan of Chelsea Handler. Uh, I, and I was sorry that her show was ending in August. But it turns out she's moving to Netflix. So TechCrunch provided the news. They said Netflix has just announced an exclusive deal with the beautiful and brilliant Chelsea Handler for an upcoming series of talk show programming, blah, blah, blah. So that's where she's going. I'm glad I'm not losing her. I just get a big kick out of her. I mean, she, she I, I will say she is certainly unfiltered in the things she says. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the last ship aired on Sunday night. Uh, I mentioned it, I think, a week ago, and it was great. So uh, I, I'm a sort of a sucker for the uh, the epidemic movies, uh, you know, outbreak and so forth. And this is uh, a uh, this is on TNT, uh, so I I recommend it without reservation. Based on, I mean, I'm not, I, hopefully they'll be able to keep it up. But the first episode was great. I tweeted out to my followers about 25 minutes in. It's like, oh my god, if you missed recording this, record it because. It was great. It is being re-aired tomorrow and Saturday uh, and even, I think, again on Sunday before the second episode on, on again, lit, lit later on Sunday. So I, I thought it was great. Um, uh, I'm continuing to work on Squirrel moving forward. We have accumulated 405 translators and 57 languages. So uh, as soon as I get the, the first release done, I will put up all of the text on the crowdin dot uh, crowdin dot net site. Anybody who's interested in participating can go to translate dot grc dot com. That's just a redirect over to the crowdin dot net site, but it puts you right to the Squirrel Project. 
and um, uh, and add yourself to the community. So I'm I'm excited to have that moving forward. Uh, I did get. And uh, this is a, I didn't know what this meant when I saw the subject line. Sean Zakari said he wrote Spinwright's success story recovery is a dish best served cold. I, love I that. thought, okay. <laughs> That's a takeoff of the line revenge is a dish best served. Of course. I mean, very clever. Recovery yeah. is a disc, dish best served cold. He's not going to put He's it in the high, freezer, is he? Uh huh. Hi, Steve. <laughs> I want good one, Leo. I wanted to share a success story through unexpected means. First off, I've been listening to the podcast for a couple of years now, and I'm a big fan. Blah blah blah. In honor of how Leo normally reads those sentences. <laughs> Seriously, though, I love the podcast and really appreciate your expertise. My friend called and asked advice about recovering data from the hard drive in his Power Mac G4. He's had the computer for years and has never performed maintenance on it, to my knowledge. He said the computer would no longer boot, so he took it to a drive recovery specialist. After recovering from the quoted price, he called me for a second opinion. I thought this was the perfect chance to try Spinrite. So I said I would fix the drive for him for the cost of a Spinrite license. Win-win. He agreed and mailed the drive to me. I ran Spinrite on level two first. That completed successfully. I rebooted and attempted to read some data from the drive. I was now able to, but it took a long time to bring up files and folders. Specifically, the drive would make a repetitive scanning noise of some sort. Not sure how to describe it, but guessing you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. He says, uh, uh, yes. Or, or, or sometimes it's... Yeah, that's, that one sounds like something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. Uh, and that is the, the head going out and being unable to find the sector it's looking for, then thinking maybe it got lost, and so retracting and then doing what's called a recalibrate and then going back out again. So Ooh, that's not good. Not good. Um, he said, I decided to run a level four scan next, but throughout the process, the Spinrite UI was very slow to respond and froze frequently for long periods of time while the drive made that same repetitive scanning noise mentioned previously. At 0.12%, the UI froze entirely and the drive went silent. So everything just locked up. He said, reading through the Spinrite FAQ for ideas... And with a very pessimistic eye on the situation, I decided to try the last suggestion first. I put the drive in the fridge for an hour, popped it back in the computer, and started a level four scan again. The scan process hit that same 0.12%, and the UI started to move sluggishly, but overall not as bad as before. I shut the monitor off and let it go. I was on the way out the door anyway. When I came back four hours later, the scan process was half complete and moving along steadily. It finished late last night. I'm happy to say the drive is totally quiet again and the data seems to be intact. There were a couple of I.O. errors in my friend's home folder, which I'm guessing may be related to trying to read an HFS plus volume in Linux. 
but it looked like all the important data was accessible. Thanks again for a fantastic product. So this one really did. I mean, this was on the, this was really way out on the verge of, you know, past its its life expectancy. But thanks to cooling it off, uh, which surprisingly can function, as he says, recovery is a dish best served cold. And he got his data back. Send them a copy of, send the IRS a copy of Spinrun. I think they're having a little trouble with I, their I've, hard drives. I've had some people <laughs> tweeting, has Daryl Issa been in touch with you? <laughs> Uh, Steve, we're going to take a break, but we have questions. You said it, 10 of them from our strong and true audience. Before we do that, though, let me uh, tell you about one of our favorite sponsors, the great folks at IT Pro TV. You see me with the big IT Pro TV mug. It says IT Pro TV hearts twit. And I think they really mean it. In fact, if uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, then IT Pro TV must love us. I love it too. Tim and uh, Don actually asked me. They said, "Do you mind if we copy your model?" What we want to do is uh, do video uh, for IT people, people who want to get their certifications, it's specifically aimed at the various certification tests, but also uh, uh, for people who just want to tune up their skills. And I said, "Of course not." First of all, it's it's a it's a really good way to do it. And uh, I'm honored. They uh, they have been doing very well, I might add, at IT Pro TV. Uh, I think they just, I don't know, but I think they just crossed their 10,000th subscriber. You may remember that it was only a few months ago they crossed the 1,000th threshold. They're growing fast. And that's because they have such an easy, entertaining approach to teaching you IT. If you are ready to get the certs for the A-plus exams, you know, the CompTIA A+, Net+, Security+, or Microsoft's MCSA, or maybe the Cisco. Are you, are you ready to do the ISC squared security certs? They've got a great trainer there, Adam Gordon. You may recognize that, that name. They're also going to, uh, coming in the third quarter, do Apple certs, VMware, MS Office as well. Uh, always adding new courses. They add about 30 hours every week. The courses are nice because they're organized... Um, in the way that the the, te- the tests are organized. So you can actually go to a course and study up on a particular page or section of the test by watching those particular videos. Their virtual machine sandbox lab is awesome because it lets you, even if you don't have access to servers and clients, actually do the work on their clients and servers via the virtual machine. You can also take the Measure Up practice exams. Those are worth 79 bucks, but they're included in your subscription. Subscribe annually. You can download episodes in the audio MP3s to listen offline. They also have corporate accounts available for departments and companies. It is fantastic. ITPro.tv slash security now. Take the tour. Find out about the plans and pricing. Normally $57 a month, $570 for an entire year. But right now... You can get 30% off if you use the offer code SN30. SN30 takes a third, almost a third off your subscription. And not for the first month or the first year, but forever. ITPro.tv slash security now. Use the offer code SN30. They have a Roku app. You could play it on any device. It really is fabulous. A great way to learn IT. ITPro.tv. TV slash security now. All right, Steve, I've got questions. None of them come from me. 
They all come from your <laughs> viewers who go to grc.com slash feedback. Feedback. And uh, don't, you know, people sometimes say, well, does Steve go into a chat? Because I have to ask him a question. And I always point out that Steve likes to answer correctly. Steve takes great pains, in fact, uh, to research his answers. So he doesn't want to answer off the cuff. So I, th- I, don't, I'm putting, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like <clears throat> that's, that's why you do it this way. So you can really get, the, get it down, get it right. Well, and, yeah, and I, I, what I do also is I'll like I'll see many questions about the same thing, right. and I'll find like one that's the most representative, and so like I, I try to find things that are like in general people are asking. I think that it's very easy to have you know somebody say, and I don't know how you manage to do this on your show, but I've watched you do it, Leo. You know, my my, my Belkin RB twenty seven Q. Uh, I can't find the reset button, yeah. and, and you know, you know where it is, but yeah. I don't know where it is. So, <laughs> you, but it's easy enough to find. I'm just, I'm just, I can Google and talk at the same time. That's right. That's uh, somehow, really my, yeah. And that's I, my I, secret. I, I need to stop talking when I walk. So, yeah. <laughs> Question one comes from Tennessee. Reed is on the line. He says, "Steve, I work at a boarding school, and I've been setting up a transparent proxy server." It's a high school, boarding students, so uh, kind of important that I block questionable websites. I figured out how to block non-encrypted connections fairly easily, but I'm not sure how to block the HTTPS connections without doing a man-in-the-middle attack. Now, of course, HTTPS is designed to fight this, not to mention the ethical implications of intercepting such packets. I don't know where to go next. Do you have any suggestions? So, um, yeah, um, I thought about this, and the only need, the only reason to, from a technology standpoint, to intercept, uh, you know, to do a man-in-the-middle attack, to intercept HTTPS connections, is if you if you care about the contents of the traffic. The reason corporations do it, the reasons, you know, like large facilities do it, um, is they're trying to protect their network from viruses which could get in over secure connections. So, you know, HTTP does, HTTP would normally, you know, erect an encrypted tunnel that would prevent someone from seeing inside. But if what you really want to do is questionable websites, then DNS and IPs provide you all the protection you need you don't need to see inside the 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 traffic itself you just need to say you know the following website domain names and or ip addresses are are blacklisted so and and also the only way to successfully filter https is to force everyone to have a have a certificate and with that comes a lot of responsibility. So, you know, I'd, it's just sort of better to stay away from that and just and use DNS and IP blocking that can be done outside of HTTPS at the TCP level just to keep people away from sites you don't want them to visit. I, I don't I, I for this kind of thing, it just really seems like cracking into their connections is more than you want to do and more than you need to do. Because you're just blocking the site. You don't have to block the contents. Now, exactly. the one thing he's worried about is that somebody will use, say, 
uh, an open VPN that they'll, you know, you, you use uh, ProXPN, for instance. And uh, then he can't see any of the traffic at all. But there's, he could block proxies, I guess. Uh, you know, there's just no way to, to, I mean, a VPN bypasses the block. So right. there's no way to get into a VPN connection. You'd have to, I mean, there are, there are, ISPs, for example, that prevent you from using Tor, right. or that then, and I've heard that there are some, there are, for example, like um, like a uh, a gateway like Starbucks has might be VPN hostile. Although normally you can get around that by using a a TCP VPN, you know, through HTTPS and, and look like regular HTTP traffic, even though you're actually VPNing. So there are generally ways around that, but yeah. Uh, you you can do what you can, but there's a lot you can do without having to crack into the connection. And, you know, just uh, just one other thing, Reed, to make it easy on you, a lot of schools use OpenDNS.com. Uh, they have a school system. Let them nice. do yes. it through DNS is often so much easier and more effective than trying to do it all by yourself. It sounds like he's doing it by hand, which is Right, and, and then then just block DNS except for open right. DNS that right. prevents anybody from using other DNS servers and that if you force them to use open DNS then you get open DNS's protection i think that's a great great idea leo yeah uh question 2 comes from scott doyle brisbane australia he's been thinking about squirrel and just personal identity security in general steven leo do you think it's possible to apply squirrel uh, the technology and methodologies to real-world personal identification data. We hear all the time these days of people's identities being stolen. Could we then simply revoke a stolen identity and get on with our lives? That's the problem with, you know, in the U.S., and I imagine every country does something like this, we have social security numbers which cannot be changed. They're yours for life. But a token that represents your SSN, now that would be interesting. Long-time listener since day one, first-time caller. Keep up the great work. The Sugar Hill Podcasts. We're a revelation. The whole world should be made to listen to them. So, okay, just real quickly on this one. Um, the way to think of Squirrel, I think the easiest way to think of it is that it's a means of saying to a website, I'm back. That's really all it is. It, it, that's what it does. So it's, it's anonymous and and in in when i'm writing documentation i talk about an identity association meaning that you are, you I, you associate your squirrel identity at a website so so that's what it is i mean it it isn't more than that it it and and but it isn't less than that that is it does that one thing i think perfectly so so that so that you're if you like created an identity on, on a, like on a blogging site, then when you come back, the site knows it's you. You're the same entity that was there before. That's all Squirrel does is it, it, it with cryptographic purity, it says this same entity came back. Now, if you, if while you're there, you create an account that's got real world data then that will be associated with your squirrel identity. But that's not necessary, but it's likely. For example, when I, as soon as I get it, you know, like the moment Amazon supports squirrel, if they ever do, I will, I, I will associate my squirrel identity at Amazon 
with my Amazon account. So I can then use Squirrel to log into my Amazon account. And that then, then creates that association. Um, so so it, is, it is certainly the case that, that if Squirrel caught on, there, there, there could be services, for example, that, that, that bind your real-world identity to your Squirrel identity and... If your squirrel and, and squirrel provides a mechanism for securely changing that, you you get or getting it back if it's stolen. They're, they're like there's complete control over that, so that could be done as a service. But that's really it's sort of outside of squirrel's scope. All squirrel does is it's able to cryptographically anonymize you uniquely on every website and say when you come back, it's me again. I do think, though, there would be nice to have some sort of authentication that could be revoked for your real identity, for your personal identity. It'd be an interesting problem. Um, an identity that could be revoked. So that's the issue. You can't revoke your social security number. So right. Well, and, and and we have a problem with fingerprints too. You know, yeah. you can't revoke your right. fingerprints. Your birth date's always your birth date. Oh, I guess you could change that, but. Um, but if you created, if you had these uh, identities that you could revoke that you, I don't know. It seems like, you know, get to work on that, would you? Uh, question three from, <laughs> from Dave Redekop. Hey, Dave, uh, nerds on site. Remember him from London, Ontario, yeah. Canada. Steve, your podcast has been instrumental in helping our thinking around what security should be. We're always grateful. And every week we look forward to your podcast. You may be aware of the Reset the Net campaign, which has been about adopting uh, more secure methods, protocols, and apps for our collective benefit, especially those of us who wish to preserve our remaining civil liberties. In our business, we are constant. There, uh, Nerds on Site is a support uh, business. Um, they're kind of a, a system for uh, independent support professionals and IT professionals. Very and very tech savvy. Yeah. In our business, we're constantly coming across new victims of cybercrime. And in thinking about it one day, we realized that if we, the industry really, simply followed your advice of HTTPS only everywhere, we would have stopped every single financial cybercrime we've ever been called in for on a postmortem. Unfortunately, we were never able to share much event detail with the public. Suffice to say, if secure HTTP had been the only allowed protocol, not a single one of the crimes would have been possible. So why not simply block all non-secure HTTP traffic, attempt to automatically redirect it to HTTPS to minimize inconvenience. I'm asking rhetorically, of course. Thanks to you and Leo for all your efforts each week to put together a world-class podcast. Thank so you, this was a great question, um, and I see it in various forms in, in the Security Now email all the time. So as I said, this is sort of my process of of sorting through things and and finding things that everyone is curious about, uh, or at least more than one person. Um, certainly, it's the case that more and more sites are supporting HTTPS. But unfortunately, even now, it is really the case that you know the majority of sites still don't. It's not free. You need to have a security certificate. On your server, it's a little tricky when you're in a in a ho in a multiple domain hosting environment because 
now clients support something called DNI, a domain name indication, where they're able in the original connection to specify in, in, in the initial HTTPS handshake, they can specify the domain name there that they're wishing to connect to. That's important. Otherwise, every single domain name has to have its own IP, which isn't available in a shared hosting environment where there's generally some IP constraint. So, I mean, there, there are still too many barriers to HTTPS. Um, it's getting better all the time. Um, and, you know, the, one of the things that is nice is when using HTTPS everywhere, you you sort of opportunistically try to connect with HTTPS. And if it fails, you back down. You know, many sites do support HTTPS, but the, the URLs you click on, for example, in Google are not HTTPS. They're just HTTP. So you could be having a secure conversation. They've got the certificate. They've, they've, they've made all the services available, but normally they only switch you into that mode when you're going to log in or do something that is security critical rather than just staying there all the time. So, you know, this is, this is a, a perfect example of slow evolution in in our understanding of the importance of security on the internet i i know we'll get there someday i mean there will, st- there will always be sites that are http only but i think that'll end up at some point being the exception rather than the rule well i can't believe that a bank or financial institution wouldn't be but dave uh, david twist in adelaide australia he uh, isn't so sure about iOS 8 and randomizing MAC addresses. You mentioned uh, that iOS 8 uh, will randomize MAC addresses, said that's probably not going to break anything. Mm, I want to let you know there are some retail analytics services that will be broken by this change. Arrowhive, Euclid, and Retail Next offer commercial services that rely on unique Wi-Fi MAC addresses. These services Use features of enterprise WLAN vendors, including Arrowhive, Aruba, Meraki, Ruckus, and Fortinet, to sniff the MAC addresses of passing Wi-Fi devices. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what we're trying to block here. Exactly. Uh, you know, it doesn't spoof the MAC address when you log in, only if you're just passing through. There are also several museums that use homegrown systems based on this technology to track visitor volumes among their exhibits. The commercial services I've looked into hash the MAC addresses within each WLAN access point to help preserve some measure of user privacy, reporting the hashed MAC address to the cloud-based analytics service. In any event, the effectiveness of those services will... (laughs) Yes. Yes, this is the Uh, point, David. Will be uh, negatively affected by iOS 8 randomizing MAC addresses. Keep up the great work, David Twist, Adelaide, Australia. So I just... I got a kick out of this because, of course... That's the point. I, I said... Yeah, I said when I said if they wouldn't break anything, I meant you'd still be able to log in to wherever you wanted to, but them randomizing MAC addresses is del- is intended to break these retail analytics services. So, I anyway, I appreciated David's comment because it it you know, it allowed me to make sure that I had made that clear, and I got a kick out of the fact that 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 he even mentioned that He's he's looked into it, and they're hashing the MAC address within each WLAN access point to preserve a measure of privacy, which is an admission 
that there is a privacy problem, but the fact that they're using a hash, as we know, a hash is going to turn a MAC address into another unique token. Yeah, big which deal. Still allows tracking. <laughs> big deal. So, uh, whoops. <laughs> big deal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or yes, is that's not a. Or as we said, that's not a bug, Leo. That's a that's feature. That's a feature. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking he probably works for one of those companies. Uh, Doug Z in Bethesda, Maryland, knows a thing or two about the Windows Azure IP space problem. Uh, you mentioned the Azure IP space uh, recently. I wasn't surprised. I've been using Azure. Uh, that's a Microsoft's cloud service for about a year now, primarily for testing. And one thing that struck me, as very odd from the get-go is Microsoft does not allow you to allocate a standalone virtual machine that isn't publicly accessible. Part of the way they built Azure requires a public IP for every virtual machine created. What? <clears throat> yeah. That seems odd. For my yeah. test, I mean, for my testing needs, I only need one publicly accessible machine, even though I frequently spin up to 100 VMs up. Uh, I need them all to be able to communicate with one another, but only one of them needs to be accessible from my personal computer. However, Azure has no ability, at least in this time of writing, to specify that a virtual machine is only internally accessible. My point, of course, is if I'm using Azure in this way, there must be others using it like this, too. That's why they need their IP space. It's being unnecessarily yep. eaten up simply due to the lack of options that Azure provides to end users when it comes to defining a VM as not requiring a public address. In any event, I thought this was interesting and, and, and worth mentioning. Well, that explains why Mike. What, what does Microsoft have? One or two of uh, these, what is it, Class B addresses? Like yeah, and, and I, I really I wanted <clears throat> to thank Doug for this. This was interesting. And, and you can imagine that somewhere right now, uh, somebody is working on adding that feature yeah. to the Azure uh, system. Well, so but the problem is that since it didn't have it, so many people probably don't even worry about it. And they just go, ah, there's plenty. Microsoft's got a huge uh, store of these. Yeah, and as we know from, from we, we covered this, uh, I guess it was last week, that they've run out of domestic IPs and they're now assigning them from their other, you know, major geographic spaces and upsetting people who are using IP geolocation uh, and, you know, it makes their service look like it's in some foreign country. It's like, whoops. But wow, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. Question six, Chris Murphy, Denver. Wonders about secure sites not showing they're secure. I got a new credit card and I uh, started going through the laborious task of updating all the sites that have my card on file for auto payment or that I might shop with. I, like you, joined the Harry shaving bandwagon after hearing you and Leo rave about them. Yes, a truly nice shave. I went to update my credit card information, but I noticed I did not see the telltale signs of a secure connection. No little lock, as you show, no way to see an HTTPS, nothing. I sent them a message saying, hey guys, I heard of you on security now, you better get up to speed. But then I hit Pandora, same thing. Using Digicert, I found they're quite happy with both sites, so I switched browsers. My primary Safari on the Mac, but I get mixed results with Firefox and the Mac PC, i.e. on the PC. Some sites show different things, none consistent. How can we tell folks who uh, don't to? How can we tell folks to don't do anything? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I didn't edit that. <laughs> how can we tell folks not to do anything until they see the lock and or HTTPS if it isn't constantly displayed? How can I, as a somewhat 
savvy computer user trust a site myself. Should the browsers stay somewhat consistent in showing what's secure and what's not? Thanks in advance for any advice. This is a common we haven't, question. Yes, and we haven't talked about this for a long time, so I thought it was worth sort of coming back to it. Yeah. And I had something to add to it also. So the problem, Chris, is that that uh, it's very much like I was just talking about uh, in response to um, the question about HTTPS. Um, GRC went to only HTTPS. So even when you're doing nothing, I mean, when you're going, you know, just like browsing around GRC, we're secure. We're HTTPS everywhere, all the time, um, and we even have we even support the the HSTS, which is the secure transport uh, uh, flag, where we're telling servers. Only connect to us securely, and we even built that into Chrome. Uh, I was Adam Langley. I had email exchange with, and I said, "Hey, could you add me to your list of of domains that you only connect to securely?" So it is possible to always be secure, but it's not necessary. And the the confounding thing is that you could be sitting at a page on the site. Asking for your credit card information, which where the page itself is not secure. The page was delivered insecurely, but the form, when you actually click the button, it will be a secure submission. Now, that's really, though, sort of retrograde. The reason is, if the form is delivered insecurely, it could have been modified. And so w once upon a time, we were saying, well, you know, that's kind of okay. As long as when you click the button, the submission itself is over a secure channel. The problem is you can't see that. You'll When you click the button, the confirmation page will come up in response to your secure connection and submission, and it'll say, thanks very much, that'll be secure. But it gives people a much better sense of security if the form itself is delivered securely. But it's also only the safe way to do it. If the form is not delivered securely, it's completely susceptible to somebody altering it, changing, for example, I mean, the, the, changing the URL that this, the form submits to. So if you got a form from your bank not delivered to where the form itself, the fields you're filling out, is not secure, you have no idea, no assurance that when you click the button, it's going to go back to the bank because their insecure delivery of the form means that anybody could have altered the URL in the form's submit URL to, to send your credit card information elsewhere. So... I remember years ago saying, yeah, that's really not such a big deal. Of course, the world has changed a lot since then. And I would argue now, wow, you know, you don't want, you want to get to a secure form and that's what you fill out because then you know the form came from the institution and nobody could have gotten into it and changed it. Now, there is, there's, a, there's an option in no, no script, which is nice which is off by default, but I've got mine on and, and 
rarely do I see a problem. Only when I'm not expecting the form to be secure. This switch in that no wait, I'm, I said no script. I meant LastPass. It's a LastPass feature. Um, so everyone using LastPass can turn this on, although it's not on by default, which warns of an insecure form submission. So LastPass is in there looking at all of the all of the code coming into your browser and it will alert you if you if you have a page you've received a page that's got form stuff on it and the URL to submit it is not secure. So that's that's a nice feature to have turned on and I would recommend everyone do that. As I said, sometimes you'll come to a form that just doesn't matter you know you're you know it's a questionnaire or something and who cares if you know if it's not secure and last pass sure enough pops up a notice saying oh just so you know this is not a secure submission it's like okay good you know thanks for letting me know i'm glad that normally i don't ever see that when i care about what i'm submitting i'm looking the, for the security for of that, that in last pass where, where where is that in it's down deep i think it's under on, on the advanced tab all right yeah, because uh, that's I did not know that that was available. That's a nice yeah. It's a nice feature. feature. Uh, let's see, preferences, advanced, uh, warn before filling insecure forms. Good. Now, do sites? Is that still? It used to be very common that you have mixed pages. Yes, I I know very common. Uh, is it less so now? Uh t- unfortunately not. It I'm, seems I mean, there and, must and be is... a reason for that, right? Why would you do that? Technically, basically, it is. It is now. I would say it's security sloppiness. the the web The web developers are figuring all that needs to be protected is the transmission of the user's credit card information over uh, HTTPS. Yeah. But they're forgetting that that the point is the reason you need to protect anything is interception. Well, and if you've got interception, then the form being filled out could be intercepted and that URL could be changed. So it is it is really no longer the case. So technically, it never was. But in this day and age where the you know technology is doing everything, I mean, the bad guys are so proactive. Um, I don't think you should, if, you know, fill out a form that was not delivered securely. Yet, exactly as Chris says, he encountered it many times. Very interesting. We get that. We, we've always gotten that question. And I agree. You should, because we are pretty clear that you should be using, you know, if you're giving a password, it should be secure, blah, blah, blah. And if there's no way right. to see that, that kind of right. means makes the advice useless. Benjamin in Austin, Texas, wonders about timing attacks against crypto. Steve, I'm a Java dev by day, but I've been closely following the Libra SSL developments as a means to both refamiliarize myself with C and learn about some common security pitfalls. All in all, it's been an enjoyable enterprise. One thing I'd appreciate your input on, though, Libra SSL folks have a major beef with the cavalier way other OSs treat encryption calls that are susceptible to timing attacks. While I understand the viewpoint of defense in-depth information leakage and the like aren't timing attacks for a non-trivial frequently performed operation really in the realm of potential exploits i guess what i'm thinking here is if my focus were securing software my time would predominantly be spent examining stack corruption 
and the use after free over things like timing attacks. Um, use after free over things like timing attacks. Any thoughts right. on the matter? So it's a great question, um, and it's something I didn't mention last week. I remember I talked about authenticated encryption. Mm-hmm. I saw something. I just, I just, I just sort of closed my eyes when I saw it. I did a survey uh, when I was looking around to see if I could find any public domain, you know, like open licensed uh, AES GCM code, so that I wouldn't have to write my own. I saw the the source for NetBSD. And there in the GCM source, where they're checking to see if the authentication tag is correct, they they do a they do the standard uh, memcomp memcmp call, which is not time safe. Um, what happens is when you're in in the computer, you're comparing two strings, or in this case, they're like uh, depending upon the length of the tag, they might be um, uh, sixteen bytes. You look at the first byte of each and see if they're the same. If they are, you look at the second pair. If so, you look at the third pair, and then the fourth pair, and the fifth pair. When you find a mistake, you tick do technically or typically abort your comparison. You immediately return saying, whoops, they're different. And only if you get all the way to the end, then do you know that the two strings are identical. And in the NetBSD crypto code, exactly as the Libre SSL folks are being, you know, shaking their heads about, is an insecure timing tack, meaning that if the tag doesn't match, the t- the response from that will be faster than if it does match. And if you looked closely enough, you could figure out how much of it matched because the more that matches, the longer the, the longer the string comparison will go before it finds the mismatch. In my code, for example, and in secure code, the way you the way you solve this, is you exclusive or the two things. And then you or that into sort of a running collector of wrong bits. And you always do that across the entire string so that the length of time you take is always the same. And then only at the end do you look to see whether any of those exclusive ors, which are essentially comparisons, ever caused a bit to be set in your sum, which is essentially summing all of, you know, like, like an or to, to collect all of the, the different bits. Then you reply with the answer. And so that's the right way to do it, but it certainly is the case. I mean, right there in NetBSD is timing attack prone crypto code. So... What's been what's really sobering is the is the phenomenal results that attackers get with timing attacks. We've talked about it on the podcast before. It is surprising how potent these are. 
you you can you can do them for example in a shared hosting environment even when you're like you know in an azure or an amazon aws server where you you're in different virtual machines on the same physical machine all a bad guy needs to do is arrange to be running on the same on, on an adjacent virtual machine and they then from outside exercise your secure code giving it lots of things to do and it's even with with a even not even being in the same vm but being on the same on the same physical chipset they can crack your private keys it's just it's amazing so it it's absolutely the case that timing attacks are real they are so they're they're so-called side channel attacks because they're using something on that there's a side channel timing or energy consumption or or you know radio frequency emissions something other than the regular data channel that is causing leakage of what's going on in the data channel and boy it is you know all it takes is a few real world examples of that and you become a believer it's absolutely worth doing as as I've done with Squirrel, as I'm glad to know the Libre SSL guys are doing, and as unfortunately the NetBSD guys haven't. And I was hearing that was such a secure package, too. Mm, that's Whoops. too bad. Oh, well. Yeah. Bill in uh, Miami, Florida, question about password reuse. I've been wondering if using the same complex and very, very long password string for all my four computers WDE... Oh, whole drive encryption. Ah, oh, whole drive encryption. Introduced any serious added weaknesses if someone, the NSA, is able to mount a full-blown attack on all four computer drives. By the way, I've loved SpinWrite from the DOS days. Cannot count the times over the years, decades, where it has been of great help in getting myself or my family members' computers up and running. In fact, thanks to SpinWrite, I must have the oldest continuous working hard drive MP3 player in the world. I love software that just does what it claimed to do time after time. So th this was an interesting question. Um, I, of course, I cannot speak to all whole drive encryption, but I know how TrueCrypt works. And the answer is there is nothing wrong with sharing the same complex, very, very long pass string across multiple machines if the encryption is done right as it was done in TrueCrypt. What TrueCrypt does is it, it creates a, an absolutely random key. And that's what's used to encrypt the drive. Then the passphrase is used to encrypt the key. So, so on four different drives independently set up they will each use a very different random key and then the same passphrase will be encrypting that very different random key and i don't see any i mean it is the way TrueCrypt did this, they did it correctly with a, a a random IV, a random key, just the same passphrase. And so, so it is the case that the, the weakness is 
if one of them got cracked through a brute force attack, which is, as far as we know, the only known way of cracking that key. And that's why it's got to be complex and very, very long. But a brute force attack on one would have allowed them to discover that passphrase used on the other three. But the point is, I think what, what, what Bill's asking is, is, is there any weakness inherently, like intrinsically introduced from, from passphrase reuse on different drives? And again, no, because, of, because it was done up correctly in, in TrueCrypt and presumably in, in other whole drive encryption systems too. That, you know, there, there should not be a problem. Uh, but, you know, with, with the understandable and obvious problem that if, if one got cracked, then the other ones have been too. No uh, update on TrueCrypt, is there? No, nothing. So haven't weird. heard anything. So weird. I, just, I don't think, yeah, I don't think we'll hear anything until, I mean, I think that actually there was something I saw. It was on Pastebin, though, and I didn't track down the source. It looked like a dialogue that Matthew Green was having with the TrueCrypt with a true crypt developer where he was asking the developer to you know consider relicensing some portions of the code in a way that would allow them to to fork it and to reuse it and again the developer was really resistant to that he just wanted it not to be used use it as a reference but do your own uh well, that's interesting. I mean, the fact that the developer is speaking is yeah. interesting, if it's the actual developer. Yeah. Uh, Tim in Southampton, England, shares a frightening personal story. Only a few hours after sharing a Google sheet with my wife and unknowingly setting the sharing option to anyone who has the link, I was surprised to see at least two anonymous users viewing the sheet. The link was emailed to my wife, not distributed in any other way. I can only think... Our Gmail accounts have been compromised. Our iPads have been compromised. Perhaps Google has been hacked, or more likely, someone reverse-engineered the randomly generated URL. That's a pretty long URL. That seems unlikely. I implore your listeners to be extra vigilant when sharing any files within Google Drive. Luckily for me, I don't keep any confidential items in the cloud. The only thing these anonymous users would have viewed is a list of tasks I need to do around the house. Sigh. I've contacted Google to investigate and will keep you updated with any response that I get. So th it was funny because this triggered a, a funny anecdote from the very first release of Spinrite 6. Um, I had a technology where my original concept for distributing Spinrite was people could buy it and I would give them a link with this just bizarre, long, uh, you know, cryptographically derived string. And this would be, they would receive it um, actually on the web page. I don't remember whether I was emailing that to them. It might have been just been on the web page. They would click it in order to download their copy of Spinrite. And essentially that link with, was authorized for uh, for their use. And I remember saying, you know, print this out this is this is your key 
for access to Spinrite. Now, I guess I've grown a lot in the last 10 years because I would I just wouldn't do that now. Um, but what we discovered was that that people were downloading other people's copies of Spinrite from like archive sites. And was it's like what? How'd that happen? Turns out that the that the the download accelerators of the era and probably still today, they were aggregating the links that anyone clicked who was using those tools. So those those download accelerators, it would like open up multiple simultaneous connections, like you know five or six connections, in order to ostensibly get the file quicker. Every link that anyone clicked who was using those was sharing that link with the cloud. So, boy, was it not secure. Now, you know, I immediately revised the technology um, and canceled the licenses and reissued licenses for th those people whose copies escaped them through no fault of their own rather than uh, other than using, you know, a horrible download accelerator. Um, now, the links are good for only one time. And they ex they expire after five minutes or something like that. So we've never had a problem since because even even if you shared the link, the act of using it, which was the act of sharing it, caused it to no longer be you know active. So that you know that ended the problem. But I thought this was interesting. I can't imagine how Tim's URLs to his Google sheet are getting loose. As you said, Leo, those are really long. You know, you're never going to guess these sorts of URLs. Uh, it might be that, some, that this, you know, somebody's just looking for them and poking around in, in other people's business. It's weird. Yeah. Uh, doesn't seem to bode well, that's for sure. Uh, finally, question 10 from Corby, Reno, Nevada. He wonders about cipher block chaining and data corruption. I've always had wondered, Steve, how uh, CBC, cipher block chaining, deals with data corruption. If each block in a chain is affected by the previous block, what happens if just a single hit becomes corrupt in an early block? Surely CBC needs to be more resilient uh, to having one bit corrupt the rest of the data. Thinking particularly of whole disk encryption, perhaps after a certain number of blocks, the chaining process starts over? So that was a great question. I, I was talking also yes, uh, last week when we were talking about authenticated encryption about how cipher block chaining you you start with an initial an, a so-called iv an initialization vector and xor that with the plain text which has the effect of inverting all of the one bits from the initialization vector of the plain text then that you encrypt to get the cipher text then you take that sort of as the initialization vector of the next block. That is to say, you take that resulting ciphertext and use it to XOR the next block's plain text, which you then encipher and get the second block ciphertext and so forth. So this forms a chain all the way down. So yes, one corrupt bit will affect everything else downstream. How, how is that feasible? Well, first of all, whole disk encryption doesn't use a single chain over the entire disk. Um, it actually uses a different technology called XTC 
that's uh, like the most recent one that that is is coming to vogue now. But even CBC being used on the net, it is cipher block chaining only chains um, a a a block of data. That it, for example, a packet's worth. So a a packet might be maybe sixteen k, for example, and the individual blocks are are sixteen byte blocks. So a thousand or a k, you know, ten twenty four chain or, or block ciphers in a row, and it's true. If one bit was corrupt, then it wrecks the rest. But only for that packet. Each packet starts over, starts its own chain, and it has its own initialization vector and its own sort of a local packet length chain. And with communication, when when you're if you get a, a bad packet decryption on the other end, then you say, "Oops, we got a problem. Please retransmit." So, in a communication scenario, you always have the ability on the internet to say, "Please retransmit." You don't have that ability on a hard drive, and that's why we have error correction code to fix errors when we're trying to read them back because whoever it was who wrote that data, you know, that might be months ago. You know, they've, they're long since gone. So because you can't ask for it to be rewritten on a hard drive, you need ECC. You don't need that in communications because you're able to say, hey, send it to me again. And the answer to really to the question of cipher block, block chaining is that just small blocks are chained and the chains always start fresh at the beginning of a new packet. And it works great. You know what else works great? Security now. And Spinrite, the world's <laughs> best hard drive and recovery utility. And the two merge together in one place, grc.com. That's Steve's website. You can go there right now. And uh, see all the great free stuff he's offered. Buy a copy of Spinrite. You know, all of that all that kind of stuff. You can also follow Steve on Twitter, at SGGRC. Steve has 16 kilobit audio of the show, for those of you who don't want to spend any bandwidth to get it. He also has great transcriptions. We'd like to start hosting those here, too, if that's all right with you. Somebody, yeah. somebody will send you a note. Because we do have transcriptions for the other shows. We thought, well, we might as well have a complete set. Uh, you can also... Um, Get full quality audio and video at our site, twit.tv slash SN, and wherever finer podcasts are stored, like iTunes and places like that, or get the Twit apps and you can watch live or download later. We do the show live Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2000 UTC. Love it if you'd stop by. Um, and if, uh, if you can't, uh, well, then just download and listen. That's the most important thing. Steve, we'll see you uh, next week. What are we? What are we going to talk about? Do we know? No idea. We will let and maybe Google's Q uh, QUIC protocol, uh, or maybe whatever the internet brings us in the meantime. We certainly don't seem to be running out of things to talk about. I got a huge list <laughs> uh, moving out into the future. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. Thank Wait, you, Steve. And I'm, oh. we're not going to we're not going to have you next week. I don't are know we? who we're going to have next week. It won't be me. I'll be in Hawaii and Maui. Um, okay. Snorkeling and scubaing and enjoying my life. Cool. Well, I will enjoy talking to whomever you have from your staff. It might be Mike. It might be Father Robert. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm sure cool. we've. I'm sure we already know, and I just haven't been informed. <laughs> we'll make sure somebody. That's lets what it's you like know. to have a big operation. Yeah. 
Hey, thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security.